have your Bibles, we are in Matthew chapter 9 this morning, looking at verses 27 through 38, Kingdom Miracles, Messianic Compassion. Lord, we thank you for your word now. Minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me the grace to teach accurately and clearly in a way that indeed exalts our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. All right, we are in Matthew, uh, theme uh, Christ the King, and we are in this section, uh, chapters 8 through 10, the authority of the king, proving his prophetical right to the throne by fulfilling prophecy, and uh, so we will continue on with that theme here this morning. Matthew presents Jesus as the Jewish Messiah who would be king. Uh, This Messiah would be a deliverer and a ruler. He would be both divine and human in one person. His messianic credentials were kingdom miracles, also called signs, that were unique to him in terms of scope and kind. They gave evidence that Jesus was indeed the promised messianic king, presenting the kingdom on the condition of national repentance and faith in him. Well, Matthew 8 and nine emphasize the authority of Jesus as the Messiah. His authority over all sickness and disease, over the forces of nature, over demons, over death, all collectively serve to show that Jesus is the divine human Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. There is no greater proof of the Bible than the Bible. It is a spirit-inspired book, And the internal proof of this is great. It's wisdom, it's beauty, it's harmony. And how it all centers in the person of Jesus Christ is truly amazing. He is the centerpiece from Genesis to Revelation. Now, it's not merely that Jesus did miracles. It's how his whole life from every angle harmonizes perfectly with the totality of the prophetic scriptures. The things that Jesus did, you see, fit perfectly with what the Old Testament teaches and prophesies concerning the coming kingdom and the prophesied Messiah. It all harmonizes with the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He didn't just show up in a vacuum and say, hey, I'm doing a whole new thing here. No, no, no. It builds on previous revelation and matches it perfectly. Well, we pick our study up today in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. and We read there, When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, in context, Jesus had just raised a 12-year-old girl from the dead, evidently at Capernaum. And as he departed from there, these two blind men followed him, crying out, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, even though they were blind, this showed some real spiritual insight. You see, son of David is a messianic designation. God promised David that his throne would be established forever. How how does that work? Okay, I'm, 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 I'm getting to be, David dies at the age of 70. He's getting to be 68. My throne's going to be for. How's this going to work? That's what God promised him, a forever throne. And thus, as we follow the revelation of God along, we find it would be fulfilled in a, the greater son of David, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, note, uh, key prophecy here, 2 Samuel seven sixteen. 16. Uh, God is 
speaking to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established, just in case you didn't get it, forever, forever. We're talking about a forever throne here. How's that work? Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Unto us a child is born. That's the humanity of Christ. Unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Deity, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David, David's descendant, the son of David, who is to be both human and divine, verse 6, and over his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from this time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God's going to make this happen. One more text. Jeremiah, we could spend the rest of the hour on this, actually, so many of these references. But Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a Davidic descendant, a branch of righteousness, a king, that's royalty, shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. And the thought continues, verse 6, in his days, Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name. Who is he? This descendant of David. This special descendant of David. Who, what's his name? Who is he? This is his name by which he will be, will be called. The Lord Yahweh. Our righteousness. You know what that is? That's deity. Deity. His humanity. Where it says, I will raise to David. And his deity He is called, his name is the Lord, our righteousness. Not only does the Old Testament present the coming Messiah as the son of David, but so does also the New Testament. Again, there's harmony in all of the scriptures. Romans chapter 1, Paul writes, Concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David. He's our Lord. And yet he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, his humanity, and declared to be the Son of God, deity, with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. We constantly see this interweaving of humanity and divinity in one person, in the Messiah. Again, at the end of the book, Revelation twenty-two sixteen, 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root... I'm the source, I'm the creator, I'm the root, that's deity, and the offspring of David, humanity, the bright and morning star. Well, because son of David is a messianic designation, Matthew, in the very first verse of this book, introduces the book by saying, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's where the book begins. Jesus was a descendant of David by adoption through Joseph and by blood through Mary. From every angle, through and through, he is a descendant of David. But beyond that, he is the most special descendant called the son of David. As we often like to say, he is the greater David. Because he actually is a greater than David. Because he's not only David's son, but also his Lord. Not only the offspring, but also 
the root. Well, since the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, we haven't heard this phrase, son of David, brought up until this point. This is the first mention of it in terms of the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, as far as what we have recorded. This is the first recognition of Jesus as this messianic son of David in terms of his earthly ministry. That becomes significant in our study. Now, these blind men evidently knew that when the Messiah comes, he would usher in the messianic age, which would be characterized as a time when the eyes of the blind would be opened. And they were right in this. These guys had some theology about them, right? Yes, they did. Isaiah brings this out again and again and again. Isaiah 29, 18, in that day, ultimately we're talking about the kingdom here, kingdom context here. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. Isaiah 35, verse 5, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Isaiah 42, 7, to open the blind eyes. To bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. When John the Baptist began to question, and you can understand why he kind of started to question. I mean, after all, he's preaching Jesus as the Messiah and saying, repent for the kingdom is at hand. You know, if the kingdom's at hand, you're expecting to go into the kingdom, right? It's, it's right here. We need to repent so we can go into the kingdom. And we're, we're expecting to go in, those of us who are repenting. All of a sudden, he's in jail. What, 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 what have I gotten wrong here? Well, when he began to question whether Jesus was the, the one to come, the Messiah, Jesus sent this message to him. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. You see, these were messianic credentials in keeping with the Old Testament prophecies related to the coming king and his kingdom. And he was fulfilling these messianic credentials to the letter. These are miracles of the kingdom that only the coming messianic king would bring about in kingdom restoration. These things are indicative of kingdom restoration. We're all waiting for the kingdom. What a glorious golden era that's going to be. What a glorious time of restoration that's going to be. That's what the Messiah brings to the table. And this is why the writer to the early church in Hebrews says this. Very significant verse. You, you realize it's written to the early church. Not far removed from the ministry of Jesus Christ and, of course, the apostles. But he says to that early church that they have tasted the good word of God and the powers, that's the word miracles, the powers of the age to come. What is the age to come? It's the kingdom age. It's the kingdom age. They tasted that. They, they sampled it. In the ministry of Jesus Christ and by extension his apostles. The miracles that Jesus did were unique to him. Because they were signs that he is the Messiah. And technically these miracles belong to the kingdom age to come. 
of which his ministry was really a sampling or a foreshadowing. There's only one Messiah. Only he did these kingdom signs on this level and scope. He was absolutely unique. You know, to claim to do what Jesus did in terms of sign miracles is to claim to be able to do kingdom signs indicating you're the Messiah. Think about that in terms of sound theology. To claim that you're doing kingdom signs is really to claim that you are the Messiah, which is totally heretical. Jesus did what only God can do, what only the God-man can do, what only the Messiah can do. These blind men called on Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David, and they called on him to have mercy on them. Note, they didn't cry for justice. We demand that we get a fair shake here. No, no, no. No. They cried for mercy. You know, if you have any biblical insight, you're you're really crying for mercy, not justice. You really don't want to get what you have coming. I don't either. Uh, This, by the way, shows some humility on their part. And I think an affliction like this probably was a, a means of really humbling you. It seems like they were very humble. They could have been bitter and jaded, saying, why did this happen to us? Make it right. But no, they cried out for mercy. Now, the idea of mercy is to have compassion and sympathy toward those in misery. That's mercy. Somebody's in a miserable condition, and there's concern, there's compassion. It's the idea of taking pity on someone. It can be characterized as compassionate treatment on those in distress. In the Old Testament, various words are used that are translated as mercy. However, consistently throughout the Bible, it's the idea of of caring for those in distress who are helpless to help themselves. Mercy cares and acts to relieve misery. That's mercy. Now, when the son of David brings in the kingdom, you know what it's going to be? It's going to be a time of relief. You know what he says in Romans chapter 8? You know what we're doing right now in these present bodies? We're groaning. Some of us are groaning more than others. And the older you get, the more you groan. It's interesting the sounds my wife and I make as we now go to bed and uh, we get up, have to get up and things are popping. And anyway, (laughs) oh yeah, we're groaning. Uh, The kingdom will be a time of relief, time of mercy, time of healing, Time of restoration. That's what the coming kingdom is all about. That's why I'm praying your kingdom come. It's the golden age that we're waiting for. This is what the kingdom is all about. And with this in mind, these blind men called on Jesus for mercy. The son of David, the Messiah, who can do something about their situation in terms of kingdom restoration. Verse 28, and when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. It's interesting. (laughs) Jesus waited until they were in the house to address them. So I I picture them calling out, son of David, have mercy. And And they're following him all along the way. And he doesn't address them until... They get into the house. It's thought that this house was probably Peter's house. 
And perhaps Christ's home base in his adopted hometown of Capernaum, which became the ministry headquarters for his Galilean ministry. Well, in the privacy of the house, Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? You really believe I can do it? They, in effect, were calling him Messiah in referring to him as the son of David. Again, the Old Testament scriptures inferred this is something the Messiah would be able to do in conjunction with the coming kingdom. In essence, Jesus was asking them if they really believed that he was the Messiah, which would be evidenced in him healing blindness, indicative of kingdom miracles. Well, as far as recorded miracles, by the way, recorded miracles of healing, healing the blind is addressed more than any other ailment. I think there was probably a lot of blind men in Galilee during these days. There is a physical reality, but it corresponds to a spiritual reality in terms of blindness. Jesus is able to give sight both physically and spiritually. Now, I think the tendency for humans is to put the emphasis on the physical, but really God puts the emphasis on the spiritual. And I think that will come through in our study as we continue on. In asking the question, Jesus, I think, was dealing with spiritual realities in terms of what they believed about him. That that becomes a spiritual matter. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Their response was a lordship response. They said, yes, Lord which in this context related to believing would probably indicate they believed in his deity. You see, Lord is sometimes used as a polite address in the sense of sir. But when used of faith, when used in faith of the Lord, it consistently means master, God master. Lord has the idea of one who has authority over. Uh, the word Lord and master, I mean, that, that's the idea of Lord, master. They were recognizing that Jesus as Lord had authority over their blindness. Who has this kind of authority? Old Testament scriptures, Yahweh, the king, when he comes to set up his kingdom, he'll have this kind of authority. Jesus said, you think think I can do that? They said, yes, Lord. Verse 29, then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. Now, Jesus did not always require faith to heal people. Certainly, when he raised the dead, those people had no faith, right? He didn't stand over the corpse and say, if you just have faith, I'll I'll do something. (laughs) No. But in this case, Jesus did base his healing on their faith. Saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. Now, in terms of spiritual application, people see in connection with their faith. Theologically, we might ask, do people see and believe, or do they believe and see? This is the age-old issue regarding the mystery tension between sovereignty and responsibility. And we do want to emphasize that apart from God, no one ever sees the truth on their own. They just don't. They don't seek, they don't see. That's where we are in our depravity. In blindness. But there is what I like to call the light of conviction. 
for which people are accountable to respond. We see this early in the Bible in Genesis 4-7 as God reasons with Cain about the issue of sin which was lying at the door of his heart. We see it in Isaiah 1-18 where God says, Come now let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they shall be white as snow. We see it in places like uh, Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, 20, 21. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge. These people had privilege of some knowledge. Through knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's the knowledge. They've come to see the truth, uh, to understand, uh, have some knowledge about Jesus for who he is as Lord and Savior. But he says, if they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known, than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Holy commandment here, I think, is, is the holy gospel, which, by the way, is, is a command. It's not a suggestion that you believe. You're commanded to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews says this, <clears throat> one of the, uh, whoops, oh yeah, here's Hebrews. It's that verse under 2 Peter. <laughs> Hebrews 10, 26. For if we sin willfully, this is willful rejection. This is sinning with your eyes wide open. If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, which is uh, consistently used in the New Testament in relationship to the gospel. The knowledge of the truth. God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's no other option on the table. So people are accountable for the light that is given. And ultimately, by the grace of God, those who come to believe do so because they have responded to the light of the gospel. So do people believe to see or do they see to believe? Well, in a qualified sense, both are true. In a, in a qualified sense. Everything needs qualified. Uh, we see what God shows us. As Romans 1.19 says, What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. And therefore they're accountable. <clears throat> God in conviction shines the light of truth. But if people reject it, they remain in darkness. And are accountable for their rejection. I love this verse uh, from John chapter 3. And it's all good. John 3, 16, 17. I like 18 as well. And 19. Let's continue on. 20. Anyway. But John three eighteen. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. What is the issue here? Belief. Belief is the whole nine yards here. He believes, not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned. Why? Why is he condemned? Because he has not believed. That's why. You say, well, you know, he, he just wasn't predestined this way or the other way. Uh, no, personal responsibility is emphasized here. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. Here, here's the condemnation. What does God say? Here's what I have. A, a, here's my problem. Here's the condemnation. The light has come into the world for which they are accountable. 
Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. I don't want the light. They reject the light, and therefore they're accountable for not believing. Well, Jesus asked the blind men if they believed, and they said, Yes, Lord. Jesus then touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. A word about faith. In the Bible, faith always has an object. Namely, the Lord himself and his word. And by the way, what you think of the Lord, you think of his word. And what you think of his word, you think of the Lord. You cannot separate the Lord from his word. Faith in faith is no faith at all. It doesn't matter what you believe. If it's just random stuff, if it's attached to nothing, it counts for nothing. When Jesus said, do you believe that I am able, the focus is on I am able. Meaning Jesus is able. The whole issue surrounds who he is as the son of David, who he is as Lord. It was their faith in who Jesus is as the divine Messiah, who is Lord, that was honored. It would would have not really been a good thing if they had said, you know... uh, we believe that if we just have faith, uh, just in a vacuum, if we just have faith, it'll be a, that's good enough, isn't it? No. The issue is faith in Jesus for who he is. This is always the issue. Faith always has as its object God and his, wor- and, uh, God and his word. Faith in faith is empty faith. Faith must be in the Lord and his word. Verse 30. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. Boy, doesn't this kind of smack of a strange thing to say? Their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them. Not not like saying, you know, could I make a suggestion? Sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. Now they have just said, Yes, Lord. You'd think, they said, well, you're the Lord. Okay, if you don't want anything said, we're not going to say anything. We're going to walk out of here and looking around and people are going to say, what's happening? (laughs) We're not talking. (laughs) Immediately their eyes were opened, only to hear Jesus sternly warn, see that no one knows it. Isn't that an interesting command? I'd say so. If you're a thinking person, that's an interesting command. I mean, how could these formerly blind men keep their healing a secret? Is it even reasonable to ask this? Of course it is, because the Lord just said it, so I'm not going to argue. But you look at these guys. What, what, what were they supposed to do? They couldn't lie about it, right? Are they supposed to go on pretending they're blind? No, no. Uh, what are they going to do? This is, this is a real problem. This is a real challenge, isn't it? Yeah, put yourself in their shoes. This is a pattern in Christ's ministry at this point. In chapter 8, he healed a leper and then he said, See that you tell no one. 8.4 After Jesus raised the 12-year-old girl from the dead, as seen in Matthew 9.24, the parallel passage in Mark 5.43 says, Jesus, quote, commanded them strictly that no one should know it. Again, it's, it's hard to hide a daughter who's been dead and is now alive. And now upon healing these two blind men in the somewhat privacy of the house, he sternly warned them, see that no one knows it. So we see this pattern. Why this emphasis on don't tell? That's a good question. 
There may be a couple of things in view here. Commentators are all, you know, batting this around, trying to figure it out. Again, realize the context. This is the first time that we publicly have somebody hollering out, Son of David! And you have to realize the context here. In the context that he was in amongst the Jews at this point, there was tremendous messianic fever charged with political connotations. Political connotations. You know one thing Jesus didn't come to be? He didn't come to be a political savior. He didn't come for that reason. Might not want to spread the word there. That's not the right message. Maybe not. So there was a lot of messianic fever. And the thought was that Messiah would politically take over and throw off the yoke of Roman oppression. Bring it! Bring it! We're ready for deliverance. Recall in John chapter 6 when uh, Jesus gave the people free breakfast. Free food. They were, it says, trying to force him to be their king. And so what happened? So he departed. That's not how it works. Jesus did not want the general populace to get the wrong perspective about him being the Messiah. He did not want them to think through the lens that they presently had in terms of the kind of Messiah the son of David would be. They had some wrong perceptions. Oh, he was the Messiah. Oh, yes, he was the Messiah. But they needed to see him for who he truly was and not according to their preconceived ideas about what they thought the Messiah should be or do. So it seems Jesus does not want a wrongful messianic enthusiasm to overwhelm his ministry. The other thing is Jesus did not want the attention to be on the sensationalism of the miracle. You know, people love the idea of miracles, right? We could go for one about right now, right? I mean, it would really charge the place up. People love the idea of miracles. Let's have a healing. Let's have somebody, you know, you got ailments out here. Get excited about miracles. And they kind of go miracle crazy sometimes. Especially when real miracles are happening. But let me say, that is to miss the point. It's to miss the point. You see, the miracles that Christ did were really all about pointing to him. He is the point of the miracles. Not the miracles in and of themselves. We have an entire movement in Christianity that is absorbed with supposed miracles and healings, even though so much of it is clearly phony and based on falsehood. Imagine the out-of-control enthusiasm if real miracles were happening. Now, of course, the miracles were wonderful. Praise the Lord for them. But again, they were not an end in themselves. The intention is that they point to Christ The intention is to be on Jesus for who he is, not merely on the miracle. There's this weird phenomenon where people get more wrapped up in the gift than they do the giver. The focus must always be on the giver of the gift. The focus must always be on the Lord himself. And that is the point. Verse 31. But when they had departed, they spread spread the news about him in all that country. But it's a contrast word. In contrast to what Jesus had just said, they went out and spread the news about Jesus throughout the whole region. So much for obedience. Now, some have tried to give them the benefit of the doubt, saying perhaps they didn't really talk about the healing. It just says they spread uh, the news about him. 
so some say, well, maybe they were just, uh, you know, talking about their newfound belief that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of David. But it's pretty hard to separate who he is from, from what he did, which was the point we saw earlier. Imagine you're out here and you're saying, he's the, he's the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of David. And, and what would the question come to these guys? Why do you think so? Uh, 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 we just do. <laughs> It'd be pretty hard to say, not say, we were blind. He healed us. Pretty hard. So my take is the plain sense would seem to be they disobeyed and they went out and told everyone. Which probably made the mission of Christ all the harder as it only fed a wrongful messianic fever that was on the scene and was misguided. Verse 32. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. As the healed blind men departed, a man who was mute and demon-possessed was brought to Jesus. Now, the word translated as mute literally means dull, can refer to dullness either in speech or in hearing. It's used that way, either way. So it can refer to a man being deaf or dumb, deaf and dumb. Uh, the Bible makes a clear distinction between that which is just physical illness and that which is demonically caused affliction. And sometimes it's hard to know the difference. I see these people walking around making all kinds of contortions and spewing all manner of nonsensical speech. And, and I wonder, is there demonic activity involved here? Or is this strictly a mental or a physiological problem? Often it's hard to tell, frankly. It's hard to tell. I remember when I was a young man in Bible college preaching at a certain ministry in a certain facility, and uh, there was all kinds of people there. And boy, as I was preaching along, some of these people started spewing all kinds of hateful uh, words and all kinds of uh, filth. And when I stopped preaching, it just quieted down. Uh, what is this? Uh, is this just them? Or is there demonic activity involved? It's hard to know sometimes, honestly. And I think we do have to be careful. Uh, the world out here, however, seeks a natural explanation for everything. You know, it's just, it's just mental illness. Well, maybe it is, but maybe there's a spiritual cause. Um, to seek a natural explanation for everything and, and refuse to recognize the reality of the supernatural is where the world is at. But in truth, demons are real, and demon possession is a real thing that affects people in different ways. And the world has no clue, zero, and the best they can do basically is sedate these people. And I guess there is a point. But we must avoid both mistakes. Not every affliction is because of demonic activity. There are real uh, physiological issues, real mental issues so that are not necessarily demonic in any way, shape, or form. But on the other hand, demonic affliction is a very real thing. The point of the text is that Jesus had authority over every realm, whether it was just plain sickness or demon possession. Christ had the power to bring deliverance because of who he is as the divine human Messiah. Verse 33, And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, it was never seen like this in Israel. Now, in contrast to the other miracles where people were said to be healed, here the demon was cast out. Jesus didn't cast out sickness. He healed it. But there's a real person involved here, a demonic person, a demonic personality. 
and he cast it out. This was a power encounter. And Jesus threw the demon out of the man's life, literally. And then the mute man spoke. And we wonder, you wonder, right? What did he say? I I would like to be able to tell you. I'd like to think he said, praise the Lord. I've been delivered. He's the Messiah. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, We don't know what he said. But the multitudes marveled in awe, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. And they were right in this. No one in the history of Israel had ever done done things like this before. Christ's authority and power were, were without parallel. The scope and authority of Christ's ministry was totally unique. How to account for it? How to account for it? Clearly it was supernatural. Clearly he had the power to cast out demons. The multitudes marveled. But, verse 34, but, but the Pharisees. The Pharisees had another explanation. The Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Now these Pharisees, you know, they were theologues. They had some theology about them. And they knew biblically There are only two sources of spiritual power. There is the God side of supernatural power. And there is the dark side ruled over by Satan. They knew this from their study of the scriptures. You got one or two choices. How does Jesus have power over these demons? Is it a God thing? Or is it a devil thing? You got one or two choices if you're a theologue like the Pharisees. But a key point here is that Christ's worst critics, the Pharisees, did not deny his power over demons. They couldn't deny it. They couldn't deny it, so they came up with an alternative explanation, a diabolical explanation. Namely, they said, he does it by the power of Satan, the ruler of demons. Now, it is true. It is true that Satan is... The ruler over demons. The Bible speaks of the devil and his angels. And it is clear from passages like Ephesians 6.12 that there is a whole hierarchy of demons that are organized under Satan. Satan is called the ruler of this world, the god of this age. However, a careful study of the Bible reveals that while Satan also has supernatural power, limited by God, but he does have supernatural power... The way it is used by Satan is completely different than that of God. You see, Satan uses his power for destructive purposes, not beneficial or benevolent purposes. You know what he does? He binds people instead of freeing them. Revelation chapter 9 verse 11, speaking of these demons who come out of the pit, And they had as king over them, I take it to be Satan, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, which literally means destroyer. But in Greek, he has the name Apollon, which also means destroyer. Everywhere you look in scripture, Satan is a destroyer. You know, he goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He wants to destroy. That's his nature. He does not come to help people. 
Say, wow, I was really blessed by Satan. No, you weren't. He never has a benevolent ministry. In contrast, in contrast, Christ's ministry was good and benevolent on a massive scale. It was completely contrary to the character of Satan. To somehow say, this is of Satan? What? Satan doesn't do these kind of things. Acts chapter 10. Whoops. My, my mistake. That one's on me. Yeah. They're all on me, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Acts 10, 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Who went about doing good and healing. All who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. See, Christ went about doing good, but in contrast, the devil oppresses people. To claim that Christ's power to free people from demons was by the power of Satan is completely contrary to the nature and function of Satan. <laughs> that just is a total a non sequitur. It does not follow. Now, Satan sometimes is allowed to do miracles, such as through the magicians in Pharaoh's court, or such as he will do through the Antichrist, going to be a very deceptive thing. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 For the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. It's according to the working of Satan. With all power, signs, and lying wonders. Satan has power, but it is consistently deceptive. And not for tr the true good of people. It isn't good, and it doesn't align with truth. Jesus said in John 5.43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him, him you will receive. This is a very telling verse. When Jesus says he came in his Father's name, this means he comes in accordance with what the Bible reveals about the character and nature of God. You do understand that Jesus represented God. So much so that he was God in the flesh, perfectly, the perfect representation of God. He comes in accordance with what God says in the Old Testament. He came in perfect harmony with glorious, wholesome kingdom standards and prophecies, presenting the truth that he is the king, presenting the kingdom. Jesus' life and ministry align perfectly with God and his word through and through. In contrast, when the Antichrist comes, empowered by Satan, he comes doing powerful things. Are you ready for this? In a vacuum. Just drawing attention to himself. He comes in his own name. I'm who I am because I say so. Jesus says, I am who I am because of what God says. I'm here fulfilling prophecy. I completely align with the Father. Not so the Antichrist. He's not fulfilling messianic prophecy. He's just doing deceptive signs and wonders that are totally self-oriented. His life will not align with the character of the word of God in terms of being the true Messiah. Well, thus ascribing Jesus power over demons to the ruler of demons was completely and totally inconsistent with scripture. They completely butchered and slandered the nature of Christ's ministry. Completely. And that too is consistent because the name devil means slander. And Jesus said of the religious leaders in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the slanderer, the devil. Ed Glasscock says, 
This verse should serve as a reminder that all the proofs offered cannot convince the wicked in his heart. The problem the unregenerate have is not accept, uh, is having not accepting Christ is not so much a matter of not having proof of Jesus' power, authority, and truth, but having a darkened heart that is unwilling to believe. Indeed, so, well, we just, if they just had more proof, hmm, is that the problem? As a matter of ref- refuting the depraved insanity of the Pharisees' charge, Matthew now presents a summary of Christ's exceedingly good, benevolent, and extensive ministry as found in verse 35. Notice verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities. What's the response to this? You say, how do you answer this? It's of the devil. How do you respond? Verse 35, Jesus went about all the cities, that is the walled towns and villages, the unwalled communities, teaching in in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. That's so Satan-like, isn't it? What blasphemy? What sheer blasphemy? That's God-like. The Gospels record three Galilean tours in Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, Matthew tends to write with a thematic purpose in view. It seems that Matthew 4.23 and Matthew 9.35 are bookends, if you will, saying essentially the same thing as an overview. So note uh, here what we got, these bookends. Matthew 4.23... Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease among the people. The other book in 935, Jesus went about all the cities, villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? Two bookends saying the same thing. Sandwiched right in the middle of these two bookends is the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7 which contains a collection of Christ's kingdom ethics, which is then followed by a collection of stories related to Christ's authority to heal. So what we have there is a five-chapter unit, chapters 5 through 9, which highlight, first, Christ's kingdom teaching, and then, second, typical examples of his healing ministry, all of which serve to demonstrate that Jesus was the king presenting the truth and power of the kingdom. So, here we go. Got the bookend. And then the other bookend. Sandwiched in there, kingdom ethics, his teaching, kingdom authority on display, his healing ministry. You see, this is the emphasis, this is the emphasis, and it's brought out here in the substance of those five chapters. Thus, Matthew thematically, in block fashion, presents examples of Christ's kingdom teaching ministry and his kingdom power, showing clearly that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah who has kingdom authority. The word gospel means good news. Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom. He presented the same messianic kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. He was the king, presenting the kingdom on the condition of repentance. He was the king, presenting samples of kingdom restoration in his healing ministry, which provided evidence that indeed he was the prophesied Messiah king on the scene. Well, alas, the leadership of Israel rejected this gospel of the kingdom put forth by Christ, and so the kingdom was put on hold. 
But the presentation of it was real. And the ministry of Jesus was extensive. Not merely a hit and miss claim here and there. It was so huge and so convincing that even the Pharisees could not deny it. And really, it's kind of interesting to read Josephus, the historian. He said there was in Galilee at that time about 200 cities that had at least 15,000 people in them. Each. 200 cities, 15,000. You tally that up. There's about 3 million people there. Showing Jesus had an extensive ministry that touched a huge portion of this population. Jesus' Galilean ministry was wide, broad, and undeniable. How ludicrous to think that this was the work of Satan with all the good that Jesus did far and wide. The whole issue is insanely wicked. I I just can't emphasize how wicked this was, what the Pharisees said here. And it builds as we get to chapter 12. And in contrast to Satan, you know what? In contrast to Satan, Jesus actually cares about people. Satan comes to harm, kill, and destroy. Jesus came bringing healing and kingdom restoration. And Christ's ministry was in stark contrast to the religious leaders who did nothing but oppress the people with their hypocritical legalism. Verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. The idea of compassion is that of deep empathy that cares deeply. It is, it is great emotion that feels sympathy. And he saw them, as it says here, my new King James, wearied and scattered, which is really better translated as distressed and downcast. He saw them in their spiritual misery. Uh, like I say, weary is better, distressed, harassed, severely troubled. Scattered is better, a downcast, a thrown down, utterly helpless. That's how he saw them. But note the qualifier, like sheep having no shepherd. This explains the root problem behind their miserable condition. These people needed shepherding. They needed spiritual care. Sheep are interesting creatures. And the Bible compares us to sheep a lot. Sheep are neither strong, nor smart, nor swift. They tend to go astray and get lost. Not possessing fangs, claws, powerful muscles. They have no weapon for self-defense. And they need a shepherd. They need a shepherd for protection. These people with their hypocritical, legalistic, proud, self-oriented religious leaders had no real shepherding care. They were distressed and downcast. In chapter 10, verse 6, Jesus calls them the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Many commentators think Jesus may well have Ezekiel 34 in mind. I won't read the whole thing, but notice it begins there. Uh, The word of the Lord came... Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Uh, Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves, should the shepherds not feed the flocks. All they were thinking about was themselves. So what does God say he will do to remedy the situation? Well, you read on in that chapter, Thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek and find them out. Why did Christ come? We came to seek and to save the lost. He is. Notice, thus says the Lord God. I'm going to do this. How? In the person of Jesus, the Messiah. God, in effect, says he himself will do it. 
And ultimately we find this is true. The Messiah, who is the shepherd. He is called in the Bible the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and the chief shepherd. Christ's shepherding ministry will come to a climax ultimately in the kingdom. We see in Isaiah 40, verse 11, he says, I will, uh, he, the Messiah, will feed his flock like a shepherd. Micah 5, 4, and he shall stand and feed his flock. These are kingdom contexts. Jesus himself is ultimately the shepherd who ultimately will tend to his flock in the coming kingdom. But in the meantime, God's program calls for using people to help him in the work of bringing people into the fold who will be in the kingdom ultimately. You know, God could just supernaturally do anything and everything that he wants to do without the help of anyone. Do you really think he needs you or me? Uh, No. But you know, God has chosen to use us. You know, God was so impressed with himself when he did that, that crowning work of his creation. And he said, wow. He didn't say, you know, it's not inspired, but, but kind of. He said, very good. You know, it's kind of like I'd say, wow, right? I mean, that's after, he didn't say that about the rest. But when he gets done on the sixth day with the, that crowning work of his creation, it is very good. God made us in his image. And we have a special mission in the world. We are to have dominion. We are, we're to be kind of in charge of what's going on here under him. And indeed, even though God uses human instruments to carry out his plan, all the glory goes to God alone. But the point is, God wants to use people in the process of bringing in the harvest of souls. This is his plan and mode of operation. He uses people and he uses prayer and he uses people who pray. Hope you're one of them. Verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the labors are few. Jesus here changes metaphors from that of sheep to that of harvest. People are like sheep who have gone astray. They need to be brought in like a ripe harvest. You know what is needed here? The harvest is plenteous. But the labors are few. We need workers. We need workers. It's so interesting. Christ said, the problem is not the harvest. We say, the harvest, there's no harvest. That's not what Jesus said. Plenty harvest. You know what our problem is? We don't have enough workers. That's the problem. I mean, we kind of got it backwards. The emphasis here is not that we need more harvest. We need more labors. Now, we're always about more harvest, of course. Lord, bring in the harvest for sure. But Jesus says, the real problem is we don't have enough workers. For too long, we have said the church doors are open. Why don't the people come? Where are they? They're out shopping. They're out going to ball games. They're out. I don't know where they are. In bed, that's where they are. (laughs) But really, we need to realize we need to go and make disciples. Then they will come to church. We got to go make disciples. That's on us. Isn't that what the Great Commission says? I I think so. The end of the book, this very book, Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, go and make disciples. And there's no end to the work. I love what I do. There'll be work for me until I die. I mean, in some capacity, there's no end to this work. For me or you. 
The harvest is plenteous. So we need to be evangelistically seeking to make disciples. And there's no end of this work. The harvest is plentiful. What is needed is more workers. Are you a worker? You available? You know, they say that 90% of the work of the church is done by 10% of the people. Now, we know that's not true here, right? We know it's not true here because we don't want it to be true. True postmodern thinking. No, I'm just kidding. I, I trust it's not true here. But it is true that often the minority do so much of what needs to be done. We need more laborers. And, and by the way, the ministry is work. Work. Uh, people a lot of times, they, they want a job where they don't have to work. Uh, 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 think about that. That's not what we're talking about. It's work. And it's easy to become a spectator. A spectator. You know, God never intended Christianity to be a spectator sport. And frankly, there's a lot of spectator Christians. Spectators. How in the world do we expect to hear the Lord say, well done, if we haven't done it? It's the thought that counts, right, Lord? It's the th- I thought about it. Well done, you good thinker. I don't think so. Become a worker in the heart. We need you. The Lord wants to use you and me. Someone has defined a football game as 22 men on the field desperately in need of rest and thousands of people in the stands desperately in need of exercise. Sadly, that often describes the condition of the church. Consistently, we have situations where the harvest of the ministry is great, but we lack workers. So what should we do about it? Bellyache, gripe, complain, develop a critical spirit towards the 90%. Is that what we should do? No. Jesus said, therefore pray. Pray. We got a problem here. We need more workers. Plentiful harvest, that's not the problem. We need more workers. What should we do about it? Well, God just sovereignly will do it. He, he will, but he's, he works in conjunction with prayer. How does prayer and sovereignty work together? I have no idea. All I know is Jesus said, pray. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus told his disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. So we need to pray about this. That is the first thing to do. Before doing anything else, we need to pray about it. Ed Glasscock again says, Perhaps one of the difficulties in motivating people to the mission field is our dependence on human inspiration rather than divine. Sincere prayer will be more effective than professional recruiting. I wonder how many Christians believe that. We need some professional recruiting. That's what we need. How about prayer? How about prayer? Many Old Testament texts present Yahweh as the master of the harvest at the end of the day. The Lord of harvest, I believe here, refers to Jesus. In the flow of thought in chapter 10, it goes on to show that Jesus sent out the 12. And note that often we ourselves become the answer to our prayer. Here in chapter 9, the disciples are told to pray about the needed labors. And then in chapter 10, they are sent out. Thus, they became the answer to their own prayers. Perhaps we have too few labors because we have too few prayers. Jesus connects the provision of labors to the activity of prayer. God works through prayer. The harvest is plenteous. The need is for workers. How do we get them? It happens through prayer. And maybe I should say at this point, let's pray. 
And we do want to say that, but first we're going to have our closing song. So let's do that. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll lead us in prayer.